0: Welcome
1: to welcome smartpeoplepodcast.com. Smart Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here with a cold. So if the bass in my voice sounds deeper, it's because I got a head cold. Anyways, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. This week on the podcast, we have one heck of a smart, charismatic, passionate guest. And before we get into it, I want to let you know that this specific interview made me realize that we need to be capturing these things for you. We need to capture what I hear, what I learn, what's happening in the moment, and the key takeaways. So go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, you'll see a little sign-up form, sign up for the newsletter. We are going to be sending out short, simple, and no more than once a week newsletters, and primarily all they're going to cover is the key takeaways from each episode. Because I interviewed our guest this week, then I listened back to it, did some editing, and then I thought about it, and then I ruminated over it. And after all that time, they're just themes and thoughts that I take away. On the other hand, I realized you might be driving or walking your dog or cooking dinner. And so I thought I can help with that retention and push this conversation by sending out these few quick takeaways and action items in a meaningful email. SmartPeoplePodcast.com. Sign up at the bottom of the page. Okay. So, our guest this week is Coot Blackson. Coot is a transformational speaker and a national bestselling author. He's been recognized as the mindfulness guru that billionaires go to for advice by Inc. Magazine. He has been endorsed by Jack Canfield, Les Brown, John Gray, and many more. And he has a new book called The Magic of Surrender, Finding the Courage to Let Go. One of the things I can promise you is you will be moved after this episode. I think one of his superpowers is he can really get down to the core of humanity and he can shake it up, which I think is what we all need. I hope you enjoy it. Let us know if you do, and be sure to tell a friend to check out Smart People Podcast. Hope to see you in the newsletter, and thanks for being here. Let's get it over to Coot as we talk about his new book, The Magic of Surrender, Finding the Courage to Let Go. Enjoy. Enjoy. I got to tell you, I, I was looking forward to this one. I've been watching videos of you, reading books of you, and um, you're like this anomaly of a person who <laughs> I feel like everywhere you go, you've got this like golden touch where people just feel comfortable in your presence. They feel comfortable okay. opening up. Okay. What do you think about that? Is that true? Is that an experience you have, and what what causes that? Um, yes,
2: mostly, and no, we can talk about the no thing too, that might be interesting. Okay. But but yeah, because, you know, I think I've always been a very empathetic person. And so, as a kid, I was deeply empathetic, and I always, even before I had conscious awareness, I just felt people, and I felt Mm -hmm. their pain. And this is one of the things that I think made my mother proud a lot, is she, she would always say, like, my son loves people and and so there was always a part of me i just loved humans i loved people i loved cared about people and so maybe the re- one of the reasons people feel somewhat comfortable is is I, I genuinely i genuinely care you know and i genuinely want people to be happy want people to be seen and so that that's that's been important to me like cameras no cameras you know getting paid not getting paid it it really doesn't matter. And, and, and that's been a part of my life. And I'm fascinated with people from all walks of life. Look, I was born in Ghana, West Africa. My father's from Ghana. He's as black as you can get. My mother's <laughs> Japanese. She's as Japanese as you can get. You know, I grew up in London, in like the hood in London, in South wow. London. And, and, and then, uh, you know, 18, I came to the US. I'm also like have a Mexican residency. And so I, I've always felt like, uh, Citizen of the world and and someone who I don't feel like I'm from anywhere, I don't feel like I belong to anywhere, I don't feel like I belong to one nationality, I just felt like a soul and so even from childhood, I've always been able to connect with like the bad kids and the good kids and the sports you know jocks and the nerds and and yeah, it's just love for for people and humanity and a fascination with different cultures.
1: Something you said there, I feel like is the key, which is when you genuinely care about people without expectation, uh, more so from just a, this is who I am. I think it's palpable. I also think it's rare. Mm. What do you think about that? Rare. Yeah, I
2: mean, yeah, I think in, in, in some ways we're all caught up know, at least typically caught up in ourselves. Exactly. And, And then we get conditioned to believe that I am me and you are you and that we are these separate beings when in fact, in reality, in my experience, we are really one at that deepest level like I had this experience for instance one time when this really went beyond an intellectual concept and like really became an embodied experience was when I was in India I was in my early 20s and I went to India for the first time shaved my head had a backpack started traveling in India and India broke me down into a level of profound humility and I found myself in the poorest state in India called Bihar where the illiteracy rate is eighty-nine, ninety 90 percent Wow uh, it's so poor. Uh, even a lot of the Indians, that the guy who I bought the train ticket from, when I told him I was going to Bihar, I said, Why the hell are you going to Bihar? He wow. doesn't even want to go there. So I found myself in the train station on the back of a train in the third class section in the poorest state in India, going for like 34 hours to the north. And I'm in a sardine can situation with the poorest people in the world. That if you sold everything that, let's say there was a woman there, if you sold everything she had, her net worth would be 10 20 dollars at most her entire net worth and so here i am within this deep poverty experience and my heart i remember my heart just broke because this woman had five children clearly didn't have enough food clearly was struggling and this kid's head is hanging out of this moving train going at 100 miles an hour and and i thought shit if this kid died, like, nobody would give a shit, like nobody, like, nobody would know, and what is the value of life, and how is it that we live in a world, and this was years ago, how is it that we live in a world that we can send people to the moon, and Lamborghinis, and computers, and the internet, but we can't freaking feed a child, and the value of a life is not valued here, and so when I felt the the suffering of humanity, because sometimes, you know, I'm in L.A. right now, not sure where you are, but L.A., New York, Austin, Miami, it, we live in our bubbles and everything is like amazing and everything is it, it is great. But there is another reality that another group of humanity right now, as we're sitting here, are living like the suffering, the extreme end. And here was this woman like the kid is dying. The kid is literally about to die, head hanging out of the train. He could fall out. Nobody would give a shit. And so that, the reality of suffering that I think we as uh, human beings tend to be so removed from in our like rarefied walls. I'm in, sitting in an office in Brentwood and I don't see any homeless people. And, and, and so because we're so removed from that, that I think it, it disconnects us. And so being that viscerally close to suffering in India in that moment, Cracked my heart open where I started feeling the rawness of like This is what uh, What shall we say? 60 70% of humans go through on a daily basis that I I don't even think about I forget because I'm so stuck in myself and so I think Our culture creates that sense of desensitization and sense of separation where we're so stuck in ourselves and so when I was in that experience crying because i'm feeling the suffering then i look into the mother's eyes and now i start crying because as i'm looking into her eyes and she's just looking into my eyes no words because i can't speak to her you know and she knows and i know and she knows that i'm feeling this and what can she do and what can i do and yet we're different different color different background different everything yet when i looked into her eyes there was this unspoken sense of of connection that what was looking at me was looking at her and there was this real feeling of oneness you know beyond beyond differences and i'll never forget that for me in that moment my heart just cracked open just cracked open feeling the sense of oneness and i think that one like like love and that compassion for another emerges in that recognition of that shared being that we all have with each other, but we have kind of, shall I say, forgotten about.
1: This idea of creating our own reality and turning it into, honestly, a little bit of its own, you know, bubble gets overused, but its own set. I I remember thinking when I moved to the house I'm in now, which is out in the woods, um, you know, within a couple of days, We have chickens, they got attacked by foxes. So there was stuff all over the place. My son almost got bitten by a black widow. And I remember calling my parents and being like, you know, nature is just trying to kill us. Like we've created (laughs) this very sterile environment that allows us to remove ourselves from so much real emotion that I think it has limited our ability and perhaps even want like our antenna to see what else is going on, or to care about what else is going on? Yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: You know, and I think it's funny because that—that's this is kind of a side note, but but I live in LA. I just moved back to LA uh, after being here for a while. I was in Miami for a year, and it, 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 I realized now it just felt a little too sterile. And 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 moving back to LA, I live in downtown, <laughs> and my friends are like. Why the hell do you live in downtown? It's crazy down there. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. But, you know, something about it is raw. It, it's, it's a little real. It's, 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 it's like it keeps you in touch a little bit with with like real life, you know, with the whole spectrum of humanity and, and there's homeless and there's crazy and there's dirt and there's beauty and there's everything in between. It's not a sterile
1: environment, I think
2: so for me I think that's that's why I, I live there
1: well and so tell me about this you had this experience in India and that might not have been the first one, but okay why do you do it and what do you view as the purpose?
2: I think I would have to share a bit about my a few things from childhood for it to, for it to make sense sure that's cool yeah because you know I was this em- empathetic kid. And I always knew I wanted to help people. Uh, There was always this calling, even from a young age, like a deep desire to help people. I just didn't know what it would look like. And then, you know, my first memories as a young boy was seeing, seeing a crippled woman crawling on the floor and she picks up the sand that this man walks on, wipes it on her face and stands up. And so week after week, literally, I grew up seeing... Blind people see, and deaf people hear, and people stand up out of wheelchairs. And the same man who Sam she picked up will look at a woman in a wheelchair and say, "Why are you in this wheelchair? Stand up. You're not sick." Boom, and they would stand up. And so this is stuff I grew up with. So I grew up in this. Wait a
1: sec. Wait a sec. Yeah. Why, why? How does that happen? I, I some, some miracles, you could say miracles.
2: This this man, the, the guy was my father, and and so week after wow. the week, I, I grew up seeing. Miracles. The, the type of stuff you see on TV and you right. wonder is, is that shit real? Yeah. And this is pre internet, pre cameras, pre social media. And so, honestly, I didn't think anything unusual about it. This was my life. And so, okay. my father was just to sort of, then, then some backstory, my father was considered the miracle man of Africa. He built 300 churches in Africa, hundreds of thousands of followers. He was very spiritual, very metaphysical, very mystical, less orthodox kind of Christian. And he had a huge church in London. And so I grew up in this environment. And at age eight, I was supposed to take over my father's churches. Uh, So at age eight, I started speaking my father's churches, but 14, it was announced I was supposed to take over. So my, my speaking career began when I was age eight. That kind of connects to today that's when i started speaking 14 i'm supposed to take over my father announces to his whole congregation my son is taking over i'm wondering well no one discussed it with me and so as much as i wanted to help people i knew that that wasn't my path my entire life was set out for me you know to 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 take over to take it to the next level but i knew that wasn't my path that wasn't my destiny and my heart sank and i was too afraid to speak my truth to my father because my fear was if I dared to be myself, if I dared to speak my truth, if I dared to tell him how I really felt, I would lose his love. I would be outcast. I'd be alone. And so it took me four years to muster up the courage to tell him I'm not taking over. Basically, what happened was I was 18 and I looked into my future. What also happened that that sort of projected me to, to today was my father would have probably a thousand self help books on his bookshelf. And this is where the obsession started as an eight year old kid where I'd sneak into his bookshelf and I would start reading books. Like my first self help book was by a woman called Shakti Gawain. And it was on creative visualization. And for an eight-year-old kid with an imagination, learning about visualization, like thoughts become things, think positive thoughts, and they become your reality, like before the secret. This was like, I I, I was in heaven, you know, I was literally in heaven. And so I devoured that, and I just started reading everything. I'd come home from school, do my homework, I'd go to my little tiny room, and I'd read, and I'd meditate. And, And that began my sort of evolution, where I started to understand, like, shit, you mean I don't have to help people through the church? Maybe there's a different way? Wow. I'm reading about Tony Robbins as a 12-year-old kid doing seminars in hotel rooms in San Diego. And so my vision opened, Jack Canfield doing seminars, my vision opened up and I thought, that's what I want to do. I hadn't told my father yet, but, but it was this feeling of that's what I want to do. So there was a lot of internal turmoil that started happening inside of me, a deep conflict of knowing what my soul was calling me to do. And I think sometimes what your soul calls you to do doesn't always make sense to your logical conscious mind and isn't always convenient. But what your soul will call you to do will force you to stretch outside of your identity and your comfort zone and take you on a journey that I had no idea. All I knew was, I wanted to come to Los Angeles and go into the field of self-help. And I had vision writing books and speaking and doing seminars and being in the field, doing what I'm doing now, essentially. And at 18, uh, things really began because I had a choice to make. I looked into my future. And so in that moment, I knew what I had to do, which was have the conversation with my father. And I did. And when I did have that conversation... To own my life and look him in the eyes, this iconic man, look him in the eyes and basically feel like I'm killing my father and tell him I'm not taking over. It was heartbreaking, terrifying, scary. But when I did, we didn't speak for two years, which was also challenging. Um, And then, long story short, I ended up winning a green card in the green card lottery. And that's what brought me to the U.S. with two suitcases, $800 Knew no one in the country. Following, following, honestly, following my soul, and not having a clue how the hell it was going to happen. I just knew that I was being guided, and I had to follow that, and that's what kind of began my journey. So that's a, a little, a little context. And so, yeah. so then I went and found, yeah, you know, the authors and Jack Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen. I mean, all these, all these guys, and found some of these people, learned from some of these people. Then that took me on a quest. Years later, to walk the Camino in Northern Spain, uh, that took me on a quest to st- go to Israel, study with rabbis. I got to the point where I felt like I wanted to know. I wanted to know certain answers for myself. I got to the point where I was tired of just reading about it in a book, and so shaved my head, broke up with my girlfriend. Put everything in storage. It was a little radical path and started traveling. And that took me on a journey that I think prepared me to do what I'm doing, which is I ended up in India and uh, had certain experiences in India that really kind of cracked me open. And then, then I came back to the U.S. And, and I had nothing. I was broke, had nothing, yet I felt such a sense of inner freedom. I felt such a sense of internal peace. Nothing to show for it. That wasn't based on, you know, a big bank account, sure, beautiful girlfriend, you know, career. It was like nothing external. Yet I felt so free. And I think out of that, like friends started saying, "Well, you seem so freaking happy. Like, what's what's the deal?" I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. I just feel really at peace." And and so kind of like one person started showing up and started asking some questions and another person and it just kind of evolved into this coaching thing and honestly I started working with one person and then kind of figured out how to work with that one person and then that led to another person that led to another person and they just started coming and I started refining I guess at that time 20 years ago you know as a kid literally uh, a coaching process before coaching was popular you know a, a way of coaching people that basically really evolved and shifted when my neighbor brought her ex-boyfriend to my doorstep and said, my boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, has lost $250,000 in Las Vegas. He's addicted to prostitutes, alcohol, cocaine, marijuana, and gambling. Can you help him? And all I heard come out of my mouth was yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, And yeah.
2: I was like, okay. So I said, bring him tomorrow. And I realized that working with him in the traditional sort of coaching sense wasn't going to work. It was gonna, there was something deeper that was going to be necessary. And so I just kind of like got this vision, honestly, of how to work with this guy. And, and I worked with him for probably eight hours in person. And it was out of that and then the entire month after that. And it was out of that that this guy's life transformed. That really evolved and exploded my coaching business because when his life transformed, he brought everybody. And one person started coming, another person started coming, and people started hearing about, hey, did you hear this guy? He was literally about to die and commit suicide and went to see this, this coot guy in the middle of Sherman Oaks and his life has turned around. And so that took things to the next level. So what I realized was from that moment, what I do, I, I don't really coach people. Uh, I don't really teach people, essentially I uncoach people, I uncondition people, I create experiences and processes that helps to unravel the layers of conditioning that we develop over time from childhood, you know, to function and survive. And so what I do is more of an unconditioning process that helps people peel the layers away to connect with, with their essence and their truth.
0: And now a break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Sandland Sleep. Trying to get good sleep shouldn't feel like training for the Olympics. Whether you're a busy parent or you're just trying to stick to your workout routine, good sleep is essential to help you get there. Enter Sandland. That's the problem that they're out to solve. Unlike other sleep aids, Sandland doesn't just knock you out. Instead, it actually works to improve your natural circadian rhythm. They have plant-powered ingredients that work with the body's natural functions to induce a state of relaxation for grogginess-free sleep. Other sleep aids can be too strong. They can knock you out. But most people don't know that that doesn't train your body to sleep better the following night. It leaves it drowsy and dependent instead. That's why Sandland aims to train your body to relax and drift off to bed softly with its formula. They have two products that target the two areas people struggle with most. First, the Fall Asleep, which aims to get you to drift off to bed within 20 minutes. And then there's Stay Asleep, which is a time-release formulation. It helps you sleep so you don't need to worry about waking up in the middle of the night. Sandland has given our show a special discount for 15% off by using code SMARTPEOPLE15. Sandland doesn't do sales, but if you subscribe, you'll automatically get a 20% discount. The best part is the good sleep guarantee. If your first purchase doesn't work out, they'll refund your money. Simple as that. So head over to sandlandsleep.com and use our special discount code for 15% off smartpeople15. One last time, that's smartpeople15 at sandlandsleep.com. And now back to the episode.
1: Through all of your work, all the people you've worked with, the experiences you've had, which have allowed you to see things differently. What do you think are the top things that are holding people back from living at a minimum the life they want and at a max their best life? You know, what are the things holding people back the most that they often don't realize?
2: Okay, first I just want to say that in so many ways, I think that we are conditioned and we don't know that we're conditioned and that conditioning essentially keeps us stuck and holds us back. So the way I see it is, as children, we're born free. You know, we're born in touch. We're, we're in touch with the divine. We're in touch with our true nature. We're in touch with them. You look into what you, you have a kid. You look into your child's eyes, and they're just like, they're not conditioned. They're not in fear. They're not so self They'll jump on a table naked and run and dance, and they're not wondering you know, what do you think? And I can't sing like Bruno Mars. They'll run naked. They're not like, oh, do I look good? They're just being, pure beingness, fearless, free beingness. And I think we were all in touch with that at some point. And so what the hell happened? We were born into a certain framework of conditioning. And so we meet, meet our parents and our parents, they were just doing the best that they could do based on their childhood, based on their upbringing, based on their life, based on their ance—based on our ancestors. And so we're born into a kind of preset pattern of dysfunction in some way. And two things happen. The first thing is, as children, maybe there was pain, maybe there was trauma, maybe... Dad was an alcoholic. Mum had mental health issues. Uh, maybe they were fighting all the time. Maybe they were great people, but they didn't know how to meet our emotional needs in some way. And so on some level, the first thing is we learned unconsciously as children to shut down, disconnect and not feel. We started learning all sorts of defense mechanisms and strategies to just deal with. The pain of what was, all the chaos of what was going on around us, shut down, disconnect, not feel. We start develop, developing all of these walls to, that we erect to just deal with the pain, and now we start suppressing, suppressing all of the the feelings and emotions as a way to function and survive. And layers and layers and layers and layers start building up that begin to block and, uh, shall we say, uh, hide. Our light from shining our true essence from shining and so we shut down then we start learning a way of being of we go into the world who do I need to be in order to who do I need to be in order to to get love validation who do I need to be in order to uh, get love validation fit in uh, be loved by mom be loved by dad and so we start developing all sorts of roles and masks and Uh, personas and an identity that we hold very tightly to as a way to get validation, love and approval, to avoid pain, get love, and we end up contorting ourselves into a certain shape in order to function and survive. This gets reinforced by life, gets reinforced by school, gets reinforced by society, gets reinforced by parents, and we end up becoming a set pattern and version of ourselves that we think is who we are. And we hold tightly to this version of ourselves that we think, no, 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 this, Chris, this is just who Chris is. This is just me. I'm just me. And so, in so many ways, we've become a limited pattern version of ourselves that we think is who we are, but is not. And now we live life this way, and it worked for us when we were five to avoid pain. It worked for us when we were 10 and 15, but often when we get into our lives, this way of being and this way of living and doing relationships ends up limiting, often unconsciously, our full expression. Limiting our capacity to love. And I think so many of us, we end up feeling, wow, i got so much love inside of me. There's so much I want to give that so we get into a relationship, but now it just it, it, it can't come out. And I'm afraid to fully express what's inside of me. Many times it's unconscious because we're stuck in a certain protective mechanism, a certain way of being, a certain identity. We have to start becoming aware of the, shall we say, often unconscious patterns of conditioning uh, in terms of our identity that we're holding on to. And so many of us, I think we are, for the most part, until shit starts hitting the fan, we are living unconsciously. So I start asking people in my work in different ways, is who you are who you really are? Or is it who you've been conditioned to be? Because the degree to which you're conditioned is the degree to which you're not free. And so, who are you really? And what are you really? And what do you believe? Do you really believe that? Is that who you really are? And I think in so many ways, we are afraid to question ourselves. Or, the, or we're afraid to question the self that we think we are. Because we, we're we so identified with that, that it can be scary to question ourselves because shit if I'm not this version of myself that I've built my entire life on then who am I and and for the ego it's 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 terrifying and so I think one of the so, so first, become aware that you're conditioned, and have the courage to start questioning yourself and your beliefs, and the in the stories you've made up about yourself and about life, and what you've made things mean, which can be scary, but it's part of where this freedom and the healing and the surrender is. Also, we have to be willing to begin feeling, acknowledging, and feeling some of those feelings that we've learned to suppress and not feel as a way to function and survive and we've often create a way of being in the world of I'll never be that way again I'll never feel that again but it's often unconscious so the awareness is is absolutely key and the willingness to feel and process through in a intentional conscious way those feelings that we've learned to suppress that are keeping us stuck in a certain shape and a certain limited pattern last thing I'll say One of the things that keeps us stuck are all the ways that we lie to ourselves. We often lie to ourselves as adults. We stay in relationships, as an example, that we know aren't aligned or right. We work jobs where we betray ourselves just for security. And so, and we end up rationalizing it. And so, I think as a place to start, we have to start with the truth. By asking the question. What lies am I telling myself? Sounds like a simple question. But we often run away from it. What lies am I telling myself? To me. Happiness is simple. It's not always easy. Feel the truth. Acknowledge the knowledge of truth. Tell the truth. Live the truth. Speak the truth. Happy life. But because of the reasons I just shared. You know, we resist the truth. We have to want to, the truth more than we want what we want. And many times. We don't truly want to be free. And so one of the questions I'll ask people is, what do you want more than anything else? What do you want more than anything else? And one of the things I see keeps people stuck is we want comfort more than we want to be free. And I I also tell people, take the pressure off of having to take action. Take the pressure off of having to do something about it. Because sometimes the fear of the consequence of the action that you're going to have to take by telling the truth often clouds our judgment and rationalization, clouds our ability and makes us more confused. Because we're afraid if I really acknowledge that I'm not in love. In this relationship, shit, I might have to get a divorce. So I, I, I'm kind of confused. I'm not really sure when deep down we know. We, we know. We know. And so when you take the pressure off of having to take action and just say, you know what? I'm not in love with my wife anymore. And just, fe- just feel that pain. Just kind of let yourself burn in that. Don't have to, You don't have to do anything. You don't have to take action. There's no rush. But just acknowledge the truth and see how that feels and let them marinate. I hate my job. I hate my job. You don't have to even pretend that you like it. Sometimes we use uh, gratitude as a bypass, you know, that just keeps us
1: stuck. Like, oh, I'm really grateful when the truth is I freaking hate my job. Feel that. I'm bought in, right? I- I'm bought in. I love the questions. Here's where I get stuck in this. Let's say I've made it somewhat through the journey. Uh, made it somewhat, okay. Uh, yes, here's what I mean. <laughs> I- I've asked the questions. How am I lying oh. to myself? I've changed the lifestyle to be more aligned. Uh, I've built it to a close enough point. Mm. But, and here's here's what I think you said that is one of the hardest things. Are you willing to sacrifice comfort for freedom? And as I ask myself that question, I'm not willing to sacrifice what's on the other end of this spectrum, let's call it, for what I have now. And what I mean is like, mm. The surroundings, the family, the safety, the, the responsibility, the all these things are here because I'm able to tolerate a discomfort in another yes. area. But I yes. do know, and a lot yes. of people listening, because this podcast was founded very much on what you're talking about, I do know so many people listening are doing something that's okay to live the life that they want. But there is a gnawing at them that they know it's not exactly what they want to do. I don't know if that makes perfect sense, but yeah. I just feel yeah. like the like preservation like of safety, like security yes. Yes. can outweigh the, I'll take the risk and take the risk It does. Yeah. It, 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 it does
2: for the most part. And, and I just want to say, it's okay. It doesn't all have to happen in one instant. It's not. We're not machines. We're not robots, and that's why I say, start with the truth. If you can say, you know what, I really hate what I do. I, 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 if I'm honest, I really like. This is not what I was born to do. Quit negotiating. Quit, you know, couching it. It's. It's like I hate it. I really. Ju- I. It gnaws me. Feel that gnawing, no and I hope Chris that gnawing. No just just you feel it and it starts growing as an energetic thing in your being. And I hope it gets louder. I'm not sure. saying leave right now because you have responsibility, you have a kid, you have all these things. I'm not that would not be responsible because you still have to pay your bills and you have to feed your kid and your family. But don't numb that gnawing. Don't pretend that no ring. Don't negotiate that gnaring. No don't don't smoke it, don't drink it, don't weed it, don't plant medicine in it, Don't freaking MDMA it, don't 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 Instagram it. Burn in it. Burn in it. That burn might take five years. That burn might take 20 years, but burn in it. What most people do is they end up negotiating it away and then they die because they do that their entire life. And they die in the cemetery with all of those gifts ungiven. And that is the saddest thing. So all I'm saying is feel that gnawing, acknowledge that gnawing, say yes to that gnawing, because that gnawing is the gift and the portal to eventually, if you feel it, to move you through your resistance. Now, resistance is okay, and fear and resistance is natural. If you're not a little terrified, if you're not a little scared, likely what you're wanting to do is probably too small for you. So if you're really moving in a direction of your edge, you're going to feel some trepidation. You're going to feel some terror. You're going to feel some fear. It's like, fuck, this is scary. Yes, good. That means you're at least going in a direction that, that's, that's, that's the right direction. If you're sitting there going, ah, this is so easy. It's, bo-. your goal's too small. So the fact that you're a little scared by it, to me, is good. The next level should be scary. The next level should be something maybe you haven't done before because then it stretches you to access parts of yourself and dimensions of yourself that you haven't had to access before. So feel that knowing. Let that knowing burn inside of you and feel it every day when you drive to work that you hate and you drive home and you feel it, let it burn, let it burn. Now, and also simultaneously, while you feel the burn, See, here's the thing. Most people, because they numb it, they don't do anything Ah. towards the direction. They just feel the burn. They get depressed. They go home, watch Netflix. 20, 30 years go by. Feel the burn. Work the job, be grateful for that paycheck, but, but now have an intention saying, because I feel the burn, let that burn be a motivation to move you into action, to creating the structure, the framework, the system, the learning, the new business, so that you can have a plan to say, okay, it's gonna take me two years to be responsible for my family, to move in a different direction, to rebuild. I'm not gonna distract myself with drugs. I'm not gonna distract myself with, 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 with meaningless entertainment. I'm going to use this snoring to motivate me into radical action, and that might mean no entertainment for two years. Right. How much is life worth? That might mean I'm not just going to just distract myself on the weekend. That might mean I'm going to spend six hours every Saturday in a tent in my backyard, figuring out the next business. Figuring uh, that might mean I'm going to have to write that business plan and have those difficult conversations to raise the money and capital for my new business. And before I was afraid, but this gnawing is so big that I can no longer stay doing what I'm doing. I'm going to have to like ask people and reach outside of my comfort zone. Use the noring. Does, does that make sense? It Use makes- the gnawing to make the plan to drive you. Then in a year from now, You won't just be stuck in the knowing. You'll be like, I have a plan. And now it looks pretty good.
0: And now a break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Fast Company Press. Fast Company Press is a book publishing company looking for authors who think differently. As the publishing imprint of Fast Company Magazine, they bring the stories of thought leaders and innovators to life. Fast Company Press publishes business books with the same commitment to quality and design that you've come to know and love in their magazine. Fast Company Press has a unique publishing model which allows authors to retain their rights while also having national distribution to major retailers. Its authors enjoy the influence of Fast Company's support in print and digital channels. Fast Company Press has a roster of innovators, rule breakers, and bestsellers. Do you have a book idea ready for consideration? Visit fastcompanypress.com slash podcast for a no-charge manuscript evaluation or publishing consultation. That's fastcompanypress.com slash podcast. And now back to the episode. It makes more sense than you
1: can know. Now, you don't know this. Some of the listeners listening know. And I can't, I get crap for telling the story too often. So maybe I'll tell it to you off air but in, in more detail. But long and short of it is, uh, me and, and a friend of mine who created this podcast that gnawing uh about 4 or 5 years at our first job we both said we can't do it anymore like in the middle of the great recession uh we quit with no no idea of what was going to happen what came of that was about mm. 5 months later we created this podcast and this podcast has gotten mm. me every opportunity almost i've had in the past hey, 12 you. years so that's just one example of I can think of three. I believe you. And what you're open, what you opening my eyes to on that is, you know, I was lucky enough that that gnawing physically broke me down enough where I had to address it, where I think yes. uh, oftentimes go. if it doesn't get to that level, you don't have the, honestly, the benefit of your body saying, like, you better listen or else yeah. you're going to regret yeah. this on your deathbed. So feeling that. Using that as the motivation, it doesn't mean it leads to a overnight change or you drop everything. But if you're not mm-hmm. willing to feel it in the first place, there's nothing that will come from it. Yes. Mm. yes. So then, okay, exactly. let's get to. I know we only got you for a couple <laughs> more minutes. Let's get to stage no, two. We, we, we got time. Let's okay, let's stage get to two. stage two. I have felt it. I know it. I recognize it. Okay. I'm and and. I'm using the metaphorical eye here. We can be a listener too. I know that what I'm meant for and what I'm doing do not align. I start to come up with my plan, my vision for the future. And at every turn, because it's new, scary, and large, at every turn, there's self-doubt. There's self-doubt on, can I do it? Who am I to do it? Why would anybody care? This is probably going to fail. Uh, all those things come, in my opinion, after you open yourself up to the truth, right? You open yourself up to dream, but now you actually have to do something about it. And in my experience, that is just as difficult, if not more, than recognizing it's there in the first mm-hmm. place. Yes, yes, correct. So then what? How do we How do we get past the, you, you refer to it often as the ego, but the doubts- given that there are no guarantees there's no guarantees either way there's no guarantees
2: either way you do it there's no guarantee but you don't do it you could hit, get hit by a truck the next second <laughs> there's no guarantee you know mm. the only guarantee is right now and so there's a couple of things i would say number 1 we just make it a bit practical just take a small step just take a small step Sometimes we get so focused on the huge steps that it freaks us out and we start focusing on everything that the dream entails and everything that we have to do and all the 61 steps and the bigness of the vision that we end up freaking ourselves out and not doing anything. But if you chunk it down, and focus on the small step. Like what is the next step? A phone call. Okay, I can make a phone call. What is the next step? An email. Okay, and if you can break it down on a practical level, all the different different chunks and steps, and you focus on the next action step, the next action step, the next action step, that's one thing that can help you. That's number one. Number two, you don't have to get rid of fear. You don't have to get rid of the doubt. As I said, it should make you scared. It should make you doubt. It should make you doubt. Because you've never done it before. So if you have completely full confidence, zero doubt, I'm telling you your goal is too small. You're secretly, sneakily playing it safe. You should be like, holy shit, how am I going to fulfill this? I have no idea. That goal is a worthy goal. A goal that causes you to doubt yourself. The self that you think you are. Because a goal that is bigger than your current capacity will cause you to doubt yourself. And as a result, it will force you beyond your current identification of who you think you are. It will force you beyond that. So it should cause you to doubt yourself. I don't know if I can do it. The current version of you cannot do it. But that goal is every goal is evolutionary in nature. And a real goal, a worthy goal, A goal you should choose will cause you to doubt yourself and it will cause you to expand beyond yourself and tap into a dimension of yourself that you have previously not accessed. That's the growth. So take a step, move in that direction, even if you don't know. You don't have to know where you're going to get to exactly where you need to be. But what I have found is when you take the step in faith and not knowing... Life meets you at the next step. And then you take another step, life then meets you again. And life then meets you again. Most of the things I have done in my life, I've had no idea how to do. And there were probably people way more talented than me, way more intelligent than me, way smarter than me. Look, you're the one that said, I want to do what you... I forget yeah, how you yeah, said yeah, it in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I want to do what you do when yeah. I... You, you're probably way more talented than me. I just had the, the, the honestly, more intelligent. You went to school, went to educate, had more education. I just was, was, was ignorant enough, innocent enough to just take the step and keep mm-hmm. doing it and not give up. And so your goal should scare you and your goal should cause you to doubt your current identity.
1: Wait, that, Coot, that should cause you to doubt your current identity. I yes. wrote this down. It's scary for your current self. But if you it should be right, but if you say, but it won't be scary for the person I become, then what does your exactly. current self matter? It, it, that's the whole point. Your current self,
2: we just get so attached to the current right. version of ourselves that we think the current self is who we are, and the current self is not who we are because who, the current self is not who we were 10 years ago. So the current self is not this static thing ego or what we think ourselves to be is not a static thing it's a process you and i are a process evolving and the only way we evolve into our ultimate selves is that we keep stretching outside of our comfort zone i look at someone like jesus buddha man look jesus okay not to have a religious conversation because i'm not even that religious and more spiritual but jesus said the things i do you can do these things and more It's in the Bible. The things I do, you can do these things and more. He didn't say, I'm the only one that can do this. (laughs) So to me, Jesus, for example, was someone who tapped into his highest possibility. Michael Jordan was someone who tapped into his highest possibility. Mother Teresa was someone that tapped into her highest possibility when it came to loving and service. Uh, Mandela was someone who tapped into the highest possibility when it came to forgiveness and visioning. All of these people are showing us what's possible that we all have the capacity for when we choose to stretch. But everyone wants to be like Jesus. Everyone wants to be like Buddha. Everyone wants to be like Bruce Lee. Everyone wants to be like Gandhi. But nobody wants to do what Gandhi did. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to do what Mandela did. But the only way you stretch into that is you stretch into that. And that means going where it's a little scary. So we have to be willing to say, yeah, I'm going to go where it's a little scary. And if we're a little scared, we're a little freaked out. We, you know, on a human level... We can love ourselves through that. We can be gentle with ourselves through that. Like you have a child. When your child, kid is a little scared to go there, you don't throw him over the cliff. You say, hey son, it's okay, it's cool. You got this, I believe in you. And so in it on the human identity, individual level, we can learn to be loving with ourselves. And those parts of ourselves that are fr- afraid, those parts of ourselves that react, those parts of ourselves that are a little scared, and some of that that may be triggering other stuff from childhood as well. You know, certain situations might be triggering stuff that has nothing to do with the current moment. It just triggers stuff we felt and triggers the voices and triggers the, the, the stories that we we've, we've heard about ourselves. You can't do that. So, number one, we should also learn to question those voices in our minds. You can't do that. Who do you think you are? You can't do that. You're not sure. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not this enough. You're not intelligent enough. We have to learn. Well, whose voice is that? Just because a thought is in your mind doesn't mean it's real. And so what often ends up limiting us from taking that action is we end up believing the thoughts in our mind as though they're real. The fiction as though it's fact. And so if we can then observe the mind, observe the doubt, observe those thoughts and begin to question, is that true? Is it fact? Is it real? To me, thoughts by themselves aren't even important. So we have to start cultivating a whole different relationship with your thoughts because your thoughts will get activated as you're expanding outside of your current identity. What's important is not just the thoughts. Thoughts are thoughts. They're happening. They're happening. 65,000 thoughts a day, some of which you can't control. And so what we have to start doing is observing those thoughts Realizing those thoughts aren't real, those thoughts aren't fact, those thoughts aren't you. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean it's fact. What's important is the importance that you give those thoughts. It doesn't matter if you doubt yourself. What matters is if you believe the doubt. What well, doesn't matter if you doubt yourself. What matters is the importance that you give the doubt. Because the doubt is just a doubt. No different than a cloud in the sky. And some of the things that we think don't even belong to us. They belong to our parents. They belong to our grandparents. They belong to things we've heard about ourselves that aren't even real. They're just tapes that are playing. So we have to also learn to question those tapes. And the questioning of those tapes, the questioning of those stories, the questioning of those beliefs, the expansion of our identity is as important as the goal itself. There's the goal... Real success is not just the attainment of the goal. And one thing that tends to make us so nervous and afraid and insecure and scary is like we get so attached to like the goal and success in a traditional sense. Like if I achieve it, if I succeed, if I fail, if I don't achieve it, I'm actually saying the goal is great. Go for it. Give 100%. But the goal doesn't even matter as much. What matters more is the evolutionary journey that the goal takes you on and the lessons that you learn along the way because no matter if the goal happens or doesn't happen if you learn the lessons along the way and become more and evolve more and grow more that's something that nobody can take away from you whether you achieved it or whether you didn't achieve it because if you can grow and evolve you have succeeded no matter what we get so attached to the goal line that we forget the soul line and when we remember on a spiritual level that we are souls, incarnated into this human experience, then, then we start seeing life differently. When we start seeing life differently, I think it provides a different paradigm and perspective that frees us up even more to live life more fully. Because if we understand we're souls, we incarnate into this human experience to learn, to grow, to evolve. That means life is soul school. Life is the the. Every experience and every relationship and every situation is really the curriculum for your soul's evolution. And if that's the case, the only way you can fail is to not learn. That's what I was going to say. Not, not grow, right? not stretch, way, not do the hard thing. That. Yeah. And if you focus on that and less attached to that happening or succeeding or not by one sort of worldly mainstream standards, then that frees you up to start just being fully present with your experience, you know? It's it's like a kid. When a kid is just playing, when a kid is just being, when a kid is just having fun, when a kid is just playing the game, they're playing full out. And so letting go of the attachment to the outcome, the attachment to success as we have it defined and seeing success as learning, growing, evolving and so goals are evolutionary, as i've said and in the process learning to love ourselves learning to to relate to ourselves on that human level with compassion and kindness along the way that's really the benefit that's really the 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 blessing that's that's where we can work with ourselves as we're moving towards the goal
1: it's soul school it's soul school. Soul school. It's soul school. Soul school, man. Listen, yeah. if anybody listen to this and isn't, isn't moved, I don't know. Check your pulse. That's all I have to say. I could talk to you for years. The good news is you put so much of this knowledge out into the world. And in one instance, you're doing it in your brand new book, which we've touched on yes. in many different ways here. The book is The Magic of Surrender, Finding the Courage to Let Go. So we're going to link to that. And I just wanted to give you, I I know we're past time. One minute. Tell us this. When people hear about the idea of the magic of surrender, right? Oftentimes people are going to think of what I stop is let go. your book talks about how it is not a passive endeavor. Give us the teaser.
2: I'll do my best in in a minute. (laughs) I mean, take all the the time you want, but I'm just aware of your time. Yeah. You know, yes, I'm really passionate about surrender. I believe that surrender is the most powerful thing that we can do. Surrender is the password to freedom. Surrender is the key to your next level. If you look at the great ones, Jesus, Buddha, some of whom I've mentioned, Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, Bruce Lee, Muhammad Ali, Bob Marley, David Bowie, Elon Musk, and we could talk about that one, Mother Teresa, uh, Martin Luther King, you know, at some point, they all surrendered themselves to the deeper expression of life they all surrendered themselves to that vision they all surrendered themselves to a vision that was bigger than themselves and in surrendering they transcended their own human limitations and they were able to tap into another dimension of potential and so in our culture today we have this idea that sur- or i should say misconception that surrender is weak that surrender is passive, that surrender is giving up, it's waving the white flag, that if you surrender, you're going to get left behind, you're going to be a victim, you won't manifest your goals, dreams and desires, you're going to be weak, you're going to be a doorman. I'm actually saying, or that you're going to get less in life, right? I'm actually saying if you surrender, what if you didn't get less, but you got more? What if more than you could even consciously project and imagine with your own ego's mental capacity just to be clear surrender is to let go of control controlling everything this illusion of control i think if the last two years showed us anything it showed us that maybe we weren't as in control as we thought we were and so it's to let go of control It's to let go of trying to force life to fit into our limited idea of how we think it should be. Surrender is to let go of the idea of who we think we should be and the life we think we should have so that we can truly open to the life that is seeking, the authentic life. Not what we think or what our parents think, but the authentic life that is seeking to express to us. And so the book is called The Magic of Surrender because when I say magic, I'm not talking about like a hocus pocus David Copperfield magic, magic being that which is beyond, like epic, beyond what you could even think, beyond that sort of monotone job that you're working in, that situation, like magic, abundance, like beyond, like, like beyond limits. Surrender is to take the limitations off of life. And then I have found what life can manifest through you and what life can create through you and what life can unfold through you will often be beyond what you could have imagined. I look at Mandela, 26 years in prison. I don't think he could have imagined that for himself. I just invite everyone to take a step. To me, it's a new paradigm. The old paradigm asks, what do I want? Yes, and you can create that way. The I that is creating from that old paradigm is conditioned in the way that I've taught. You can create that way. You can manifest that manifest that way, but it will often be limited. You might get everything you thought you wanted only to realize that what you thought you wanted was just what you thought you wanted. It wasn't what you really wanted. It was just what you thought you wanted based on who you thought you were. Yeah. But the, but the new paradigm question of surrender that I'll leave you with. Here's the question. What is it that life wants to express through me? What is it that the universe wants to express through me? Sit and meditate in your backyard. Sit and meditate for five, 10 minutes a day and just feel beyond what you you think, beyond what you expect. What is it that,
1: what is the deepest impulse of what life wants to express through me? And just feel that. I love it. Again, the magic of surrender, finding the courage to let go. Coot, I loved every second of it. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks
0: for having me. A big thank you to our guest this week, Coot Blackson. The episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. Coot's book, The Magic of Surrender, Finding the Courage to Let Go, can be found wherever books are sold. As always, you can reach out to Smart People Podcast at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. You can stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast by heading over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and signing up for the newsletter. And if you'd like to support us monetarily, head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. That's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we'll see you all next episode.